Welcome back, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society through doing what they do best, building the future. Uh, and this podcast is part of that effort. Uh, we're getting back on the saddle here. Uh, we took about a month off for winter break, and things have not slowed down for us. We are on the go, lots of business building, lots of activities within Interplay. Uh, I have a lot of travel scheduled. I'm currently down in Miami for a conference. I'm getting a talk. Uh, with a group of other business leaders from around the world. Super interesting stuff, learning a lot. Uh, but the party has started. And so today we're recording from my hotel room. And we're going to jump right into it, back into our partner meeting. Uh, and uh, we look forward to getting the show back going. We'll be producing weekly going forward until you hear otherwise. So ready or not, here we go. All right, Fong, hello from Miami. You know I'm down here. Uh, before you start, there is a bizarre phenomenon taking place down in Miami. You know, I came down from New York's 30-degree weather for a conference. I am here in this wonderful, warm, tropical, 75-plus degree paradise. And I get in the Uber. I get to the hotel. Everywhere I go, it's freezing. I don't get it. The Miami folks blast the AC. It's like 60 degrees everywhere when it's 80 outside. So everyone's wearing sweaters indoors. Who knew? Anyway, air so, conditioning is the worst. Yeah, I don't like get it. Gonna, you're gonna get a cold and like over air conditioning. Yeah. Like take it from eighty down to seventy, maybe. But isn't it like an understood human thing that like seventy to seventy two is perfect? Isn't that <laughs> universal? I'm too cold at seventy one. Seventy two is perfect. See, there you go. So it's understood. <laughs> it's a universal understanding. Anyway, all right. Let's jump into today's uh, lesson. We're glad to be back here. Uh, what do you have for us? So today I'm going to be talking about pricing strategies again. So we've talked about pricing earlier on in the podcast, but it's such a com complex and important topic for both startups and later stage businesses that I thought I'd come back to it again today. So last time we went over the basics, three different types of pricing, and talked about some general concepts across all sectors. Today, I wanted to specifically talk about pricing in B2B businesses, which in many ways can be different from DTC strategies. A lot of startups make the same mistakes in pricing when they go to market. So just wanted to keep, give you guys a few things to keep in mind. First, first thing is to engage your customers in determining pricing. So yes, you should do your research, know what competitors are charging, have benchmarks, look at customer data. But don't just sit in front of your computer screen. The most important part is getting to know your customers. Meet with them. Meet with as many of them as you can. And ask them questions about their experience and get to the heart of their pain points. Use that information to come up with your pricing strategy. Some questions you can ask them is, um, when was the last time you purchased a software solution or a service? What was that decision-making process like? Whose budget does it fall under? So if it falls under the marketing team's budget versus the sales team, they might be thinking about pricing very differently. Um, you can ask what they think is a, is a reasonable price to solve their pain points and how much is too much for them. So you get an idea of a range of, of, of where you can be uh, thinking about. Uh, number two is to keep your pricing structure simple. So keep it in line with how customers are used to buying and make it easy to budget from month to month. So pricing is not the place to innovate here. If your customers are used to paying in a particular way 
you know, monthly subscription per transaction per user. Don't stray too far from that. Anything vastly different will just be another thing they have to wrap their minds around and then have to get buy-in for. And also, don't create pricing that very varies wildly from month to month. You know, if it's if it varies too much, it's going to be hard to budget for. It's going to be hard to get approved, especially in larger companies. Tip number three: Don't price too low. So a lot of startups end up pricing too low because they lack proof points. And therefore, they lack the confidence to value the product for what it's really worth. They'd rather price their product low to quickly land the deal than really spend the time to let the market tell them where they should be. And remember, it's easier to decrease prices than increase prices. So keep that in mind when you set your initial price. Tip number four, build confidence and buy-in during your sales conversations. So if you're truly solving a pain point and you have a great product, you should make your customers understand and fall in love with your product before you get into the pricing conversation. If a customer wants to talk pricing earlier on in the conversation, they're likely price shopping and you don't really want to play that game. If they really make you, uh, they quarter you to, to, into talking pricing earlier on in the conversation, give a range. Basic customers pay this, bigger established customers pay this for a more premium product. Um, and then once you get to that point, communicate your pricing strategy in real time. So either in Zoom or over the phone, if you send it over email, you'll miss the chance to get feedback. So give them the price, let them process it, and then ask them for their initial feedback. I think you'll get really valuable information on maybe, you know, how to close this particular deal or at the very least get some information on how to approach the next deal. And then last tip. Um, keep revisiting your pricing strategy. So just because you've gotten some market validation from a few customers doesn't mean it should be set in stone. Markets and trends change, customer needs and budgets change. So stay close to your customer and constantly reevaluate. Pricing is really an art and not a, sci a science because you're dealing with people, your, you know, your potential customers who are making decisions on how to solve the problems. So it's really best to get to know them, their pain points, and understand um, kind of the psychology behind how they're making their purchasing decisions. So that's it. That's all I have. Hope that's helpful. Yeah, it's super helpful advice. And I think there's an overarching thread in this. <clears throat> when I see a founder come in and say, hey, we've created a new product that has improved the experience and quality of service in a space. And it's got all these bells and whistles and we're going to be cheaper than everybody else. I wonder why I'm bothering to hear the last hand. Exactly. I don't think winning on price is usually the right game to be in because it's typically a race to the bottom. The game is to win on creating value. And so pricing should be an afterthought. It's like, yeah, hey, you're going to stay at the market price. You don't be more expensive or less expensive, but you're going to do something better. Now, there are some scenarios where you're fundamentally changing a cost structure of an industry where you've taken something that was labor that cost $100,000 a year to do, and you've made it $5,000 because you've done it through technology. That's a different conversation. Right. But when it's kind of more head-to-head -head and you're upgrading some existing behavior or service, pricing isn't really the best way to try to compete. It should be around everything else. And so that is a different mindset. And by the way, I started a company way back that was essentially a negative price on search engines, right? The idea was you'd use our search engine 
uh, we had a feed coming in from one of the other major search engines at the time, and you would earn money that you could keep or donate to a charity. It was essentially a negative price. And that's where I came out and realized pricing isn't really what motivates people to make buy decisions. It's the thing they consider after they've already narrowed down the list of which vendors are viable, which solutions are viable, which things make sense for their life. So pricing is an afterthought at some level. And, uh, you know, entrepreneurs really, you got to get the pricing right. You have to be thoughtful about it. Fong's advice is dead on. But, you know, just know it's not the first. You shouldn't be going to market saying we're going to win because we have a lower price full stop. There's got to be a lot more to it. Yeah, if you have a truly differentiated product that provides a lot more value than everything else, then you really shouldn't have direct competitors that you should be comparing so in such a detailed way you're pricing against. Yeah, thank you, Fong. Awesome as always. If you're looking for more business insights, I'm down at a conference in Miami. Just met Uri Levine, who's uh, the founder of Waze and another unicorn. Um, he's got a book out. Very nice guy. He's got a book out uh, to help entrepreneurs think about how to build businesses. It's fall in love with the problem, I believe is the title of it, really centered around understanding problems more than solutions and the solutions kind of deliver themselves. Sounds like it's an insightful piece of content. Uh, we're going to link to it in the show notes and hopefully it's helpful to y'all. Mark, I like your Florida appropriate shirt. I, I actually thought if I'm going to be in Miami, I should be wearing lime. Doesn't that make sense? No, it's, it's very Southern Florida. I'm on brand. It's actually my yeah, only yeah. lime shirt, but it's polo. The, anyway, yeah. The more question I looking at is it? whoever designed the hotel you're staying at. But yeah, this is the W in Miami and um, yeah, a bit dated. A bit dated. Yeah. I think W had their moment and I think theirs just, they just, I think they, well, they got bought by Marriott or one of the big hotel chains and they just weren't able to keep innovating. And you had so many other new hotels come in that it's just become kind of bled now. Yeah, it's not, um, it wasn't a wow experience, but whatever. You know, I'm yeah. a simple man. Hit the bed, yeah. shower, out, out to yeah. do meetings. No bed bugs. No bed bugs so far. You check? Well, no, I think you see my girlfriend when we leg. walk into a hotel room. Well, I'm not kidding. This is a true story. We walk into a hotel room and she goes, don't move. And she goes over to the bed and then she goes, and pulls the sheets away to try to see if she can catch them before they run away. But were there I any just, bugs? No, never yet. I don't actually think you can catch bed bugs that way, to be honest with you. Well, so this, is just, this is just paranoia. This isn't like oh, just a real pure paranoia. And you know what? It makes her. I don't know why people are so afraid of bed bugs. What the fuck? You just, you take the, you trash the bed. You get a new bed. No, you spray no, no, some dude. stuff. They get, they get in your clothes and the carpet. You have to fumigate the house. You think a Roscoe's got to come in? It's such a gone. thing. I know a guy who's like the bed bug clean guy. He, he, that's his company. He cleans the bed bug situations. Dude, ben, and you when, don't want when I bugs. met him, he was uncomfortable telling me what he did. Cause I think so many people get worried that he's going to like transmit bed bugs to them. Like he's infected. And we had this he whole interesting is. conversation about like, it's a, there's a social stigma in his job that makes his life a little bit weird. It's probably like being an executioner 200 years ago. Like no mm -hmm. one liked that guy. Well, there's, there's yeah. the bed bug guy. And I didn't even think anything of it because I'm not paranoid about bed bugs. But whoever your friend is, probably a problem. I'll tell not you a great bed bug story next time I see you. Okay. 
All right. Well, I'm glad everyone was probably really excited to hear that banter. Um, we're back at it. Mike, let's get the update. What are we doing? Um, I think it'll be fun to talk about how the new Series A is the old Series A again. Uh, just a little different. Isn't that just mean it's a Series A? Well, they're calling it a seed extension, man. So it's different. It's not the Series A, you know? Optics right. are everything. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it's fun to see. I mean, I think, you know, at, in the peak of the mania, call it a year or two years ago then, you, know, you had founders raising seed extensions, but it was more opportunistic and, you know, maybe they had a little bit of revenue and they could just get some more cash and the prices were high and whatever. And then you see these monster series A's, 20 and 100, 120, 130, et cetera. And those rounds were just absolute bananas, right? Those were, you know, maybe $1 million AR businesses raising $100 million valuations. So now what we're seeing, which is interesting, is that those companies are raising $5 million rounds at 2 or $3 million of ARR. And, you know, it's anywhere from 25 to $50 million valuations. And it's funny, they're calling them seed extensions. And if you look at the news, you'll say you'll see like, oh, Series A rounds are, are not down that much in valuation, maybe only 10, 15, 20%. But in reality, they're just calling it a seed extension and they're just raising the round that way. So uh, it's been a fun trend to see. I think there's a lot of psychology around it. But at the end of the day, I think it's great for founders and, and great for investors. Someone told me once that when the government doesn't like the inflation numbers, the consumer price index, which is what they use to measure part of the inflation, they'll actually choose different brands of milk <laughs> so that they can say, oh, it's inflation didn't go up. Yeah. And they're looking at a, a brand of milk that maybe was cheaper before or whatever. This is the same kind of thing. This is a little bit of funny math. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like the numbers we're seeing, we talked about this before, uh, reported by PitchBook and all the, the, you know, the organizations that are kind of aggregating the data. It's not their... They're not wrong, but what's being reported, we think, is very carefully understating the change in valuations that were actually happening on the front lines of the market. Yeah, it's at the point now where I don't tell people that we're a Series A firm. I say that we invest in rounds between $4 million and $15 million in size. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to tell people you're a Series A firm. It doesn't mean anything anymore. It's like, cool, what's the valuation we typically enter a business at? That's the way I think we need to think about it now. This is going to, so my experience, I don't know, like, that, like when I started in this business in 06, seed wasn't a thing. Seed was synonymous with friends and family. Yeah. I'm um, doing my seed round. That meant you were like doctors, lawyers, you know, it was right. not institutional capital. All that changed and it shifted things around. There's always these moving targets around the definitions. I have a feeling though, this is going to just start to shake out in six, 12 months from now, look a lot like it just did in 1819 or... Just kind of, yeah. we knew what they meant. We knew what we knew what the labels meant. It's happening. I, I mean, I'm perhaps not as optimistic as you are that the labels will return to normalcy. I think the once you, it's like this, it's like the consumer price index. Once you people learn that they can manipulate what they call something, they're never going to stop manipulating it, right? So I think, like, I'm not going to sit there to founder and say, "Hey, founder, no, this is your Series A." If they want to call it their seed extension, I don't care what they call the round as long as it's a good company at an entry price that's reasonable for us in our LPs. So yeah, I think it's 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 sort of like a fun dance that's happening in the market. And yeah, maybe it'll shake to a certain point, but at the end of the day, it's like, where are you investing? Right. So all right, state fun. of the market. More weird chaos as things get reset back to normal. 
you want to talk about the uh, Thrive Capital Management co-sale? Only if you want to, man. Cool. Well, just to recap, uh, it was announced this week that uh, a group of investors, a group of five investors led by Bob Iger and Henry Kravis of KKR are buying a minority stake in the firm Thrive Capital for about $175 million, should get them about 3.3% of the firm. I think the, the trend here is that it's the same trend that's been happening for the last really five to eight years. It's the institutionalization of venture capital. You know, there's a lot of private equity funds out there that are publicly traded. You can buy stock in KKR. Uh, there's a lot of private equity funds that have had big sales where other firms either buy some of the management company or 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 they sell, they go public. Um, but you haven't seen that in venture capital yet. And what this really is, and with you know the with Sequoia flipping over to an RIA and and now Thrive selling a portion of the of the GP and the management company, is that uh, you're seeing the institutionalization of of venture capital. And we knew this was happening already. But this is kind of like the, this is the transactional uh, viewing of it as well. This is what it's worth. It's really interesting. And, uh, you know, I think it got to know Josh a little bit over the years. I think quite highly of him. I think um, he's a bit of a trendsetter. So my suspicion yeah. is when he makes a move like that, because uh, he's kind of ahead of the, a lot of the pack, there will be other firms that look at this and follow. Totally. For sure. Um, and the institutionalization broadly, I mean, I was having the same conversation last night with a, an entrepreneur that the whole top to bottom ecosystem now is a conveyor belt machine, right? There are certain expectations around stages, operating performance, um, all the capital, almost all, you know, almost all the capital now is institutional. This was kind of like a, a club effort 20 years ago. Yeah. And even before that, where. You know, your parents threw in some money, you tried something, maybe it worked, if it stuck, maybe you could find one of those VCs. And then if you got with the VCs, then there was a machine, a conveyor belt for part of the journey. Now it's increasingly end-to-end, institutionalized, professionalized, which I think overall is wonderful for, you know, innovation and output. Totally agree. Totally agree. So anyway, congrats to the Thrive team. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Mike. Later, dude. Chris, we're back at it for the year. What do you got for us? Let's start with what we always do, which is uh, inflation and the Fed. We have the headline is this, Mark. We, we've had we've come a long way from the peak of the inflation that we experienced last year. Hot off the press this morning, we have uh, the PCE inflation data, and again, this is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. The print came out very interesting, zero, positive 0.2% month on month for December, which is the slowest since January 2022, and significantly off the cycle high at 0.7% in, in October. And core inflation, et cetera, showed the same trend. The best part of this report for me is related to what we talked about internally last week that real disposable income that's inflation adjusted. Household disposable income increased by 2.5%, which is slower than the month before and slower than the month before that. And real consumer spending is actually decreasing at a faster than expected speed. So we're in December, it decreased by 3.4%. And that's on the back of a negative 2.4 print in November. So as a result of all that, personal saving rate, that's a, a percentage of saving household saving uh as a percentage of the disposable income 
has finally started to sort of reverse the mean. Uh, we talked about this, but over the past 10 years, U.S. household saving has consistently forget about the, uh, the pandemic period. That's that kind of just mess up the whole data data series. But before the pandemic, households stated consistently above six percent in household saving. After January last year, we dropped all the way to three percent and we hit a low in September of two point four percent. OK, and now finally, that that trend is reversing. This this has. This to me is probably the best part of, of this, uh, of, of what we've seen in the past six months. The households finally starting to conserve capital, find, trying, find, trying to spend less and save more and potentially plan for uh, a downturn that's ahead of us. And the only, the only blemish of this report I have to mention is that, um, Inflation, as we talked about, has goods and services. Goods has been the one that uh, sort of helped inflation coming down in the, pa in the past couple of months. Services, unfortunately, is still a little bit sticky, still uh, showing positive trend. And that's the part that we really have to watch uh, for inf inflation going forward if we want to come back to 2%, which is the, the, Fed's, uh, the Fed's target. And uh, all this is to say that we're, we're, we're heading into another Fed meeting in, in about a week, uh, less than a week. And, and uh, Mark has completely priced in a 25 basis point uh, increase, the slowest since the Fed started hike, really, this, this hiking cycle. And um, I, I do think that's likely what's going to happen. And, and, and the, the Fed will, will, will slow down accordingly after that. So, so we're, headline we're is the, the, the Fed's program of raising interest rates has had its effect, right? Yeah. It's, it's brought the economy back into a new equi equilibrium. Do you think inflation is still gonna be the, I mean, it's been the topic for us, Chris, for months yeah. and months and months now. Is it gonna yeah. fade to the back or are we gonna still be talking about this every day? That's a good question. So up until now, right? Every market participants, main focus has been, has been inflation, has been the Fed, and more importantly, the volatility that we've seen in the public markets and sometimes in, in, in the private markets has been largely driven by the volatility or uncertainties, right? In, in the prediction of what's ahead in, the macro, in terms of macroeconomic decisions, interest rates, inflation, jobs, you name it. Now that we've come a long way, inflation is showing the right trend and, and sort of actual data are starting to match uh, predictions, expectations, and also what's priced into the market. Going forward, of course, barring any major surprises from the inflation print or, or the Fed uh, sort of guidelines on, on, on their interest rate hikes, which I think are very unlikely at this point. I personally think that the volatility of the market will be more driven by the secondary effect of all these macroeconomic data, which is corporate earnings. And speaking of corporate earnings, we're in the middle of it right now for Q4 last year, Q4 earnings. Uh, based on what we have seen, it's sort of uh, what we talked about before, which is, you know, it, we're entering the sort of the second phase of, of, of correction that corporate earnings are starting to adjust. More importantly, the guidance for 2023 and 2024 beyond are starting to adjust downwards. Financial sector, we've seen Goldman, Morgan Stanley, American Express, uh, pretty horrible earnings and even worse guidelines going forward. The tech sector will also be hit. Microsoft, really poor guidance, even though they beat earnings, but 
very poor guidance for 2023. Um, but on the flip side of that, airlines and energy sectors will likely do pretty well, just given you know that's where sort of consumers are still spending a lot of money and, and energy prices, given the supply demand picture um, on a global stage, is is still is still very imbalanced. So. You know, to answer your question, coming back to your question, right? Earnings is going to be very important. Earnings is going to be what everyone looks at going forward. And the volatility, the, the uncertainties between prediction and actual is going to be what's driving the volatility in the market. Okay. But you, you're not mentioning in all of this, you haven't brought up jobs and like yeah. the unemployment rate. It seems like that's getting kind of a holistic recap on the market, a missing piece of this. Where are we with that? So this is where things gets a little bit um, interesting and it, it becomes, uh, you have to really, <laughs> on the one hand, be patient with, with the data, but on the other hand, try to delve in and look at the underlying tone of, of the data. So the, the latest is that the non-farm payroll data, which is the number one job data in the US for December has, again, come out very, very strong. We're at plus 223 jobs, 223,000 jobs. In December, and that brought down unemployment rate to again a historical low of three point five percent. So, from the look at that, that gives the Fed sort of bullets to to march ahead in terms of hiking hiking rates, and which is negative for risky assets. But if you look at the second part of the report, which is average hourly earnings, that has finally come down, right? So it's still positive, but the growth rate has come down. And what's more encouraging is labor participation has also come up, right? So you can't look at a job data without looking at the unemployment rate and the job data in conjunction with the labor participation rate. If labor participation goes up, likely that will translate to some sort of unemployment, higher unemployment and potentially lower wages. So we're seeing labor participation going up now, finally, which means probably households are exhausting some of their savings from the pandemic era and they're now looking for a job which will hopefully eventually in, in a couple of months translates to a lower uh, uh, unemployment, a higher unemployment rate and a lower uh, hourly earning rate, which will then translate to uh, likely lower inflation. Uh, but all that is actually still constructive for demand, which, is, which will then translate into corporate earning. So this is a healthy path is what I'm trying to say. And mm. um, more attention will be given to it going forward for sure. Okay. Anything else people should be thinking about or worried about right now? For 2023 in particular, uh, we're going to see, my, 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 my thought is that we're going to see a reversal of a lot of the trends that we saw in 2022. And one of them, probably the most important one for me that I think everyone should really watch out for is, is US dollar, the strength of US dollar. The Fed was ahead of the curve in terms of hiking rates uh, versus the rest of the developed market in 2022. Therefore, the US dollar saw a, a significant in increase in strength. That translated into uh, corporate earnings, energy, uh, has ramifications across the globe. This year, again, the Fed is, at least the market thinks that the, head, the Fed is going to be ahead of the curve in terms of tapering the, the hype, right? So in terms of the sort of just as either staying on course or potentially even cutting cutting interest rates toward the end of the year. And that has translated into the weakening of the US dollar in the past couple of months. We've seen, in fact, around a 12% decrease 
in US dollar value versus the, the major peers in a, since uh, October. So really in the past two to three months. This will then translate into um, many different things. So the uh, top of my head, what's relevant really for us, and think about, think about the international M&A market. So firms, international firms that are based, let's say in energy intensive countries that are already benefiting from the current energy dynamic and, and increases in price, uh, in, in, in prices of energy, which will have, will translate into a large amount of corporate earnings now are getting another boost from the weakening US dollar, uh, which they do not have as uh, their major currency reserve. Uh, how would they spend the money? One logical conclusion, especially taking advantage of the weakening of sort of the US, US, US M&A market and, and, and IPO market, could potentially be that, that these firms are based, let's say, in the Middle East or China, come to the US and start sort of really driving the M&A market, M&A activities in the US, which could translate into nice exits for, for US firms and that could lift up the venture and private equity space. So that could be huge for us. And you know, also for companies that U.S. companies that have large international presence, we're thinking, you know, McDonald's, Procter and Gamble, you know, consumers, and 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 of course airlines. As dollars weakens, the demand of these products and services of these companies internationally will increase, and that will then help hopefully uh, translate into the earnings of these companies. So many ramifications that, that I think uh, everyone should go through and, and, and really figure out and analyze how that specifically uh, impacts, how the, the weakening of US dollar specifically impacts their particular, particular sector. Fascinating to think about. I mean, it's kind of standard to think about the um, change in the value of the dollar and it changes the equilibrium of what's being sold abroad domestically. Yeah. Got it. Uh, the idea that it's going to be an opportunity for a buying spree for cash-rich countries on uh, American companies. Yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, and probably does have a lot 100%. of really practical implications for entrepreneurs who are looking for liquidity right now. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate your time. Of course. Pleasure. A reminder for everybody, Chris is an SEC registered RIA and uh, nothing he said should be taken as financial advice. Thanks everyone from list for listening and welcome back to the pod. Um, if you're traveling to Miami this year, hot tip, bring a sweater. If you've got any other awesome travel tips, I always want to hear them. Let me know. And you can hit me on Twitter at MPD. Take care.